Hi, I'm Evan Duncan, the senior pastor of the Baptist Church of Westchester in Westchester, Pennsylvania. I'm so glad you found our podcast channel. On it, we share our weekly messages, and from time to time, you'll see some other things as well. If you want to learn more about our church or see how you can contact us, visit bcwc.org. Well, good morning. I'm Evan, the senior pastor here, and welcome. Thank you for being with us this morning as we engage in worship together. And thank you for everybody who's watching online as well. Somebody already texted me a good morning as they're watching. And this is a reminder not to text in church, okay? (laughs) I'm just kidding. I looked at it. Last week, uh, Pastor Zach preached a beautiful sermon, and I spent the morning with our KFC Kids for Christ kids who had been gathering questions about God and their faith that they wanted to ask me. So we got down there, and there is an alphabet rug where you sit on the letter that corresponds with your name. So I sat on my letter E, and they pulled these questions from a jar and asked Thank you to our children's director, Leah, for cultivating uh, this sense of curiosity about faith with our kids in an atmosphere where they can ask these big or small questions. And there were some big ones, let me tell you. Uh, Several were tied to who God is and who Jesus is. We clarified that, yes, we believe Jesus is God. And I feel like I used every bit of my seminary degree to navigate these questions about God always existing, being active among us now, how God is bigger and more beautiful than we can imagine. But we all have questions about God and faith, right? And perhaps one that comes to us often, one that comes to me often, is this question, God Where are you? Where is God? Maybe in a moment, a conversation, a circumstance, a challenge, a relationship. God, where are you? So I hope we take this question with us as we look at the book of Esther together. And I hope that we hold it in our hands gently and carefully throughout the next several weeks. Since we're inspired by our kids and their questions this morning, um, it reminded me of something that happened this week. Uh, Outside the house, the front door of the house we're staying in, uh, we found this little frog. Uh, My three kids like huddled around it, you know, we knew something must be going on. We were just hopeful that it would be okay, whatever they were huddled around, and it was this little frog. Eventually, they held it. I brought a picture of Avid holding that frog. There he is something about wonder, approaching something. As we approach this question, God, where are you? May we approach it with the curiosity, the openness of children. May we ask it of the text, of our world, and of ourselves. Let's turn to the book of Esther. We'll begin in chapter 1. This is Esther 1, 1 through 9. This happened in the days of Ahasuerus, the same Ahasuerus who ruled over 127 provinces from India to Kush. In those days, 
when King Ahasuerus sat on his royal throne in the citadel of Susa in the third year of his reign, he gave a banquet for all of his officials and ministers. The army of Persia and Media, the nobles, the governors of the provinces were present while he displayed the great wealth of his kingdom and the splendor and pomp of his majesty for many days. How many? 180 days in all. When these days were completed, the king gave for all the people present in the citadel of Susa, both great and small, another banquet lasting for seven days in the court of the garden of the king's palace. There were white cotton curtains and blue hangings tied with cords of fine linen and purple to silver rings and marble pillars. There were couches of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement of porphyry of marble, mother of pearl, and colored stones. Drinks were served in golden goblets, goblets of different kinds, and the royal wine was lavished according to the bounty of the king. Drinking was by ordinance without restraint, for the king had given orders to all the officials of his palace to do as each desired. Furthermore, Queen Vashti gave a banquet for the women in the palace of King Ahasuerus. The party raged for six months for the king and every official who had enough influence to get a business card. Oh, and the whole army came as well. They drank and they danced and they sang and they drank and the party expanded. Six months wasn't long enough, so seven more days. This time the guest list was everyone and the extravagance would make Martha Stewart blush. There was linen and purple and silver and marble and gold. The decorating, like the drinking, was done without restraints. This is the beginning of the book of Esther. And you may be asking, where is God? <laughs> That's the question that the book of Esther has, has been asking throughout history. People have taken that question to Esther, because like Pastor Zach showed us, Esther's the only book in the Bible that never mentions the name of God. And at first reading, it feels more like a reality-dating TV show than Holy Scripture. Where is God? That was likely the question in the minds of many of God's people living in Persia, where our story takes place. It had been more than a hundred years since the Persian people had come in and taken out Babylon. And if you'll remember, Babylon had conquered Jerusalem and taken many of the people of Israel into exile. When the Persians took over, many of those people of Israel went home. Much of our Bible has stories about them going home. But many didn't. Many were spread all over. And that is where we find this story today a place where many of the Jewish exiles landed, the kingdom of Persia, here in the capital city. So our story opens with this Persian king. And the, the author seems to want us to see that this king has quite a bit of wealth and power and security. I mean, the army is at this party for six months, unbothered. But the party isn't over. This is uh, verses 10 through 12. And on the seventh day, that last day of that second party, when the king was merry with wine, he commanded Mahuman, Biztha, Harbona, Bigtha, 
Abakatha, Zephthar, and Karkas, I practiced that, the seven eunuchs who attended him to bring Queen Vashti before the king wearing the royal crown in order to show the peoples and the officials her beauty, for she was fair to behold. But Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command, conveyed by the eunuchs. And at this, the king was enraged, and his anger burned within him. So now in our story, the king sends these seven eunuchs. Likely these men were themselves captured as children to serve the king. They have no authority over their own lives or bodies, and they are sent to get the queen. So the king might parade her for all of his guests. The king sends these men he sees as objects to fetch his queen so that he can treat her like an object. But the queen says no. And though this is an ancient story, it feels very much relevant to our world today, doesn't it? She refuses to let the king push her around. And so despite the king's wealth and influence, we see the king actually has very little real power. The king has been relying on everybody to do everything for him, and his queen refused to go along with his misogynistic plans. He's angry. So what happens in the story is some of his advisors speak up because the king's unable to do really anything for himself. The advisors speak up and say, oh, this is terrible. I know what we should do. We should pass a law. They decide they'll pass a law that all women must give honor to their husbands and tell it to the whole kingdom. This king that overdid it on parties and wine overreacts. And his overstepping advisors try to overcome the crack in the system, not with a repair, but an overhaul. They make a law. A law that wives must listen to their husbands. That'll show them. And the law is sent all over the land. And they say, Vashti will no longer be the queen. We must find someone else. Remember our question. Where is God in all of this? It's a good question. I believe the author wants us to see that real power, real influence, real strength does not come in titles or wealth, status or nationality, not in political power or affiliation, not in your tax returns. Whatever this weak king is, he isn't God. I can't help but think that perhaps we see a glimpse of God at work in the courage of Vashti. She had to know that saying no to the king would not go well with her, but she refuses to participate in his behavior anymore. She will not allow her dignity to be stripped away. God is in that. And Vashti's rebellion will preview the new queen that is to come, Esther. If you can't tell already, the book of Esther is satire. It's designed to poke fun at this world that gives power and authority to people who abuse it. We can laugh when we read Esther. Even when we are horrified by the evil that happens in its setting, we can laugh because in laughter we find the strength to resist. 
Esther has always been a point, a source of, of laughter and resolve for the Jewish people. Adolf Hitler made the reading of Esther in the celebration of the festival of Purim that is described in the book of Esther. He made that illegal in Germany because he understood the power that this story has in demystifying the false powers that leaders like to wield. As the late writer Rachel Held Evans said, the story of Esther pulls back the veil on the empire to reveal that behind the golden chairs and the packed harems and the patriarchal edicts are a bunch of insecure, weak men whose attempts to puff themselves up only make them look silly. It is an empty, foolish power. The emperor has no clothes. This would all be terribly frightening were it not for the quiet, at times hidden hand of God working all things together for good. Isn't that true about our own world and our own lives? Watch the news, the things we deal with, the things we pray for. This would all be terribly frightening were it not for the quiet and at times hidden hand of God working all things together for good. We will see it in the book of Esther. This book invites us to laugh, to resist, to look for God. Nicaraguan political cartoonist Pedro X. Molina tells this story about how in his home country in 2018, there was this military takeover and protesters were being killed by these paramilitary people in the streets so activists were afraid of going out to protest anymore. So a large group of protesters decided to at night take a huge amount of balloons, white and blue, the color of the national flag, and they released them in the streets. They filled the streets with balloons. So then in the morning, those protesters watched safely out their windows as these soldiers in their battle rifles tripped and popped and stepped and stumbled on a sea of balloons. As professors Katie Borum Tattoo and Lauren Feldman say, comedians who say something serious about a world while they make us laugh are capable of mobilizing the masses, focusing a critical lens on injustices, injecting hope and optimism into seemingly hopeless problems. This is the story of Esther. Where God may be unnamed, but the actions of the Spirit of God ooze off the page. The discontent of a people who long for a world that is more like what God made it and us to be laughs at those who stand in the way. It is an invitation for us to look for God at work. To long for the world that God desires the world to be for us to be and to laugh. Let's meet Esther in Esther chapter 2, verse 1. After these things, when the anger of King Ahasuerus had abated, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what had been decreed against her. So the king's servants who attended him said, uh, let beautiful young virgins be sought out for the king. And let the king appoint commissioners in all the provinces of his kingdom to gather all the beautiful young virgins to his harem in the citadel of Susa under the custody of Haggai, the king's eunuch, who is in charge of the women. 
let their cosmetic treatments be given to them, and let the young woman who pleases the king become queen instead of Vashti. This pleased the king, and he did so. Now, there was a Jew in the citadel of Susa, whose name was Mordecai, son of Jair, son of Shmi, son of Kish, a Benjamite, who had been carried away from Jerusalem among the captive, carried away with King Jeconiah of Judah, whom King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon had carried away, and he had brought up Hadassah, that is, Esther, his cousin, for she had neither father nor mother. The young woman was fair and beautiful, and when her father and mother died, Mordecai adopted her as his own daughter. When the king's order and edict were proclaimed, and when many young women were gathered in the citadel of Susa, in the custody of Haggai, Esther was taken into the king's palace and put in the custody of Haggai, who was in charge of the women. The young woman pleased him and won his favor, and he quickly provided her with the cosmetic treatments and her portion of food, and with seven chosen maids from the king's palace, and he advanced her and her maids to the best place in the harem. Esther did not reveal her people or her kindred, for Mordecai had charged her not to tell. And every day, Mordecai would walk back and forth in front of the court of the harem and learned how Esther was and how she fared. So now we meet Esther. And we meet her uncle Mordecai, himself in exile, and he has this orphan niece who's now been pulled from his home to go before the king. Now sometimes we think about the story of Esther and we make it into some kind of romantic beauty pageant. It's not. It's kidnapping. Esther is taken. The same word that's used to describe her being taken as the people being taken into exile earlier in the story of Israel. She's now a double exile and she's an orphan and she's waiting to see her fate along with the other young women who are now held captive by this reckless and foolish king. And Esther 2.17 tells us that the king loved Esther more than all the other women. Of all the other virgins, she won his favor and devotion, so he set the royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. Esther, this double exile orphan, is now queen. Where is God? <laughs> we still might assume nowhere. <laughs> There's all this drama and intrigue. And these two people of Israel forced to participate in the lives and affairs of an evil king. What could this have to do with God or faith? Why are you telling us this story? Can Pastor Zach preach again? <laughs> Yes, he has chapter 7 and 8. Don't worry, it's coming. But God's fingerprints are all over this book. Just like they're all over our lives. In the coming sermons, we'll look again and again at what I think is the key verse of this whole book. Esther, when faced with the potential elimination of all of her people, she realizes that she has an opportunity to be used by God. That perhaps God would use her her very station and circumstances as difficult as they are to do something incredible. Esther 4, 14b says, Who knows? Perhaps you have come to royal dignity for such a time as this. Esther is the story of normal people resisting evil and worldly power and systems, even within those systems, as Esther and Vashti show us. It's the story of God working in the background. A God who invites us to discover that God, though sometimes we have to look closely in places we won't expect, God is there. 
God is in surprising places all the time. Like a bush that is burning in the desert but not being consumed. Or in the palace of a foolish king or on the blood-streaked beams of a Roman cross. Sometimes we look and we see God in the eyes and wonder of a child, in the comfort of a friend, in the conversation at a table, a hospital bed, a graveside, in a text just checking in. God is at work, even when we don't see it. This week I learned of Deborah Lipstadt. She was a historian who wrote a book about this rise in belief among people who deny that the Holocaust ever happened. When Nazi Germany killed six million Jews and five million non-Jews, some today believe this historical fact never happened. So she wrote a book about this misguided belief, and one of the people she referenced sued her. The day that she won her court case, vindicating her own writing and shining a light on the reality of the Holocaust, she then went to her synagogue, and it was time for the festival of Purim when Esther is read. And she wrote this. It made me think, who knows? If not for this very reason, I got my education, I got the upbringing I got, my job. Maybe we're all meant to do something really significant. And some of us do it in the public stage, and some of us do it by helping a child. Nobody knows of it, nobody sees it. But we're all meant to do something. And maybe this is the something I was meant to do. We ask, where is God? And God is at work in the mess. Whatever messes we find ourselves in, God wants to work and work through you, form you. God is at work. Where are you? As Pastor Zach and I were discussing this message, Pastor Zach pointed out to me that this question, where is God, mirrors the story of creation. After the humans disobey and rebel, if you'll remember, they, they hide from God in the garden. And Genesis 3.9 says, The Lord called to the man and said to him, Where are you? <laughs> Perhaps the book of Esther is an invitation to, yes, look for God, but also ask, where am I? Scholar Carol Bechtel says, Something about this book makes us take stock in ourselves and wonder what God is up to. Something about this book makes us laugh and cry and thank God all the same. Where is God? God is in the laughter and the tears and the thanks. Where are you? Recently I was um, observing this group of Children, people had come over to our house, a bunch of kids were playing as the adults talked, and at some point they started playing hide-and-seek. I remember the game starting because one of the kids was counting very loud right in the center of the room. It was a lot of fun, and then you see the kids all scatter. Didn't really pay attention to the game after that until about 15 minutes later when a little voice called out, are you guys still playing hide-and-seek? It's getting hot back here. One of the hiders had been forgotten. Now the child was unbothered, I'm grateful. The other kids made a big fuss about how great of a hiding spot they had found. But part of me was deeply pained by the whole thing. I mean, what's worse than being forgotten? 
thinking nobody's looking for you, nobody would miss you. I wonder if I had been in that situation as a child. Would I have called out or would I have just kind of snuck out hoping nobody noticed that I had been left out, trying not to draw attention to myself? I imagine for the Jewish people who were living all over the Persian Empire at this time, they they likely assumed that they had been forgotten. I mean, they are the ones who went back to Jerusalem. People criticize the book of Esther because Esther and Mordecai, though incredible inspirations, they're also not the best at following all the rules. (laughs) Perhaps there's a fear that the people in this context, the fear that we have maybe, that we aren't aren't worthy of God using us, that that maybe we're forgotten. (laughs) God, could you care about me? I think we may be afraid to ask sometimes, where is God? Because we might be afraid that we aren't actually worth God's time. That God wouldn't even look for us. That we're there hiding. (laughs) And God has moved on. Maybe we're afraid to ask because bringing out that question might make it all seem more real or painful or terrifying. But the book of Esther reminds us that God never stops working. Doesn't matter who you are or where you are or who's in power or what situation you find yourself in, God keeps looking, keeps asking, keeps seeking. Where are you? As Christians, we cling to this hope that Jesus, God in flesh, would stop at nothing to get to us. As Jesus says in Luke 19 10, the Son of Man came to seek out and save the lost. Or as he said in Matthew 28, 20, remember I'm with you always. So you may be calling out, God, are you still looking? (laughs) God is always seeking, always working, always around us, even when we don't see it, we hope it. And so this series, as we ask this question, where is God and where am I? I want us to do a practice together. A practice that I found to be very helpful in my life. And when I started doing this practice, I had these visions that I would do it every morning and every evening for the rest of my life like a great monk. And that didn't happen. As with many spiritual practices, it's something I engage with and then other things happen and then I engage with it again. I find it's always been helpful for me though. And so I want to introduce you to this practice. It's called the Prayer of Examen. It's just a reflective prayer practice that allows people to reflect on the days, the last 24 hours events, and become more aware of God's presence in their lives, to look for God and look for where they're at too. It was developed uh, by Ignatius of Loyola, a 15th century monk, a former soldier, who became the founder of the Jesuit order of priests, some of the best question askers we've got. And it's just to help us look for God and everything. And so what we're going to do to close our time together is I'll walk you through the practice and then we're going to do it together here this morning, okay? And you'll just uh, pray these prompts for yourself and then we'll send it out. It'll be an email. You can use it throughout the week. I would challenge you to do that. This is the prayer of examen. It has five steps. The first 
in the last 24 hours, be grateful for God's blessings. So you have to look for where God was in the last 24 hours. How has God blessed you? Listen. Step two, think about these last 24 hours with gratitude. Look for times where God was present. And look for times you may have ignored God, but God was present. This is an inventory of the last 24 hours in prayer. I love this one. Uh, Number three, pay attention to your emotions. What did you feel today? It's a great question to ask your kids as well. What did you feel today? Why? I will tell you, being raised as a good white Anglo-Saxon Protestant, I get to emotions, I'm like, I don't know about these things, right? But I've learned that being able to, to see what I felt and ask that question, why did I feel that way? can invite me to look inward and see what God may be calling me, what God may be saying to me that maybe I, I don't even think to believe. So what message might God have for you in the midst of these feelings? Step four, express sorrow for sin and ask God for forgiveness and love. And finally, pray for the grace to be more available to the God who loves you. So, as we reflect on the God who is present in our mess, may we spend some time looking for God in our lives. Will you pray with me? In the last 24 hours, where have you seen the blessings of God? To yourself, name them. Express them to the Lord. In the last 24 hours, where has God been present? And when might you have ignored God? Pay attention to your emotions. What did you feel? in the last 24 hours? Why? What message might God have for you in the midst of these feelings? Express sorrow for sin and ask God for forgiving love. Finally, may we pray for the grace to be more available to the God who loves us. Lord Jesus, help us to see you even in the mess. And may we ask, as we ask where are you, may we also turn and look inward and ask where are we? And as we look inward, May we see your divine light, your very image, your Holy Spirit. 
within us, working through us, inviting us to be your light in the world. In the name of Christ, we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Baptist Church of Westchester podcast. If you have questions, want to connect, or are looking for ways that you can support God's work at this church, visit bcwc.org. And as you go, through whatever your day may throw at you, I want to share this blessing with you. May the peace of our Lord Jesus Christ go with you wherever he may send you. May he guide you in the wilderness, protect you in the storms. May he bring you home rejoicing at the wonders he has shown you. May he bring you home rejoicing once again into our doors. Go and be the church.